Hey, Mr. Linden. Hello, Ms. Ratledge. It is lovely to see you on this sunny do we give away what day we're recording? I don't know if we want to triangulate that much. On this, I'll, I'll do. I'll do this. I'll do this. Um, it's nice to see you on this wonderful day of the week morning. <laughs> Great to see you too, Mr. Linden. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you um, because this week I, I'll spill the beans right away. We're going to be talking about the cabinet, the presidential cabinet. So if you had to assign a cabinet position to a fictional character who would you want to see serve and in what office this is way too hard of a question to be put on the spot for something I, like this i disagree i think it's very clear what the correct answer is okay well you answer okay uh secretary of the treasury scrooge mcduck oh wait a minute you've used that on me before <laughs> you were prepared for this question <laughs> i okay fine fine okay okay, uh, okay secretary okay. of the interior this is not a fictional person but i would like marie kondo to do it and if states are not bringing us joy then we can get rid of them <laughs> okay i'm gonna leave it at that because i'm not sure that i have a response to this question quite yet maybe by the All end right. of the podcast i can come back around yeah. but i think we'll we'll leave it with that zinger Okay. Um, so, uh, as I said, the subject of this week's episode is the presidential cabinet, a little bit of history, a little bit of information about what's going on now. Um, so uh, I should probably do a little intro thing, shouldn't I? That sounds great. Let's go for it. Welcome to Historically Speaking with me, Mr. Linden. And me, Ms. Ratledge where we explore the history behind the topics in this week's news. So uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the cabinet, shall we? The presidential cabinet. Um, well, yeah, let's so... talk about it. But, but, but before, we, before we get started, you know, we have a lot of new listeners. We're very popular these days, Mr. Linda. <laughs> I'm, I'm always popular, but all right. <laughs> okay, well, I'm newly popular, so, you know, I'm going to bask mm. in it a little bit. Um, yeah, no, for think, those of yeah, think... you who can't see, Miss Ratledge is wearing sunglasses and like sort of just shooing away paparazzi at the moment. I think it's important to introduce ourselves, um, not necessarily give away too much, but for what it's worth, Mr. Lennon and I are history teachers, if you haven't figured yes. this out, doing a podcast about history. <laughs> um, <laughs> I teach um, American history. I used to teach AP Gov classes and um and way 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 back when i taught a world history class or two but my my expertise is for sure with american history yeah and i teach uh modern world history and i now teach some uh ap government and i also teach an introductory economics course um but i would say definitely world history stuff is uh is my wheelhouse though i've dabbled elsewhere so basically the point of this is that we are experts in everything she just wanted of to clarify. I thought that was clear <laughs> from every episode. So. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the topic of the cabinet. Why are we talking about this today, you may be asking. Well, yes, oh, I'm giving it away when we're recording. Yesterday was inauguration. Um, yesterday, <gasps> January 20th, is the inauguration of a new president. Um, and when we have a new president, we always get new members of the cabinet that are confirmed by the Senate. Um, to come in and help essentially the the executive branch determine how to do things, when to do things, enforce laws, and of course advise the president. 
Um, so Mr. Lynn, I know you really wanted to talk about, I know you were itching, dying, I can tell, to talk about the executive branch and give us a little of primer course. on that as your as our the... resident government scholar. I, I cannot be contained how excited I am to be talking about the executive <laughs> branch. So the cabinet is made up of the heads of each of the executive departments, the, the, the federal agencies um, that uh, handle various different parts of uh, the government function, different parts of enforcing the laws, right? Because that's what the Constitution says that the executive branch is supposed to do, is to enforce the laws that Congress passes. Uh, so we have a whole bunch of different departments, and we've added several over the years, and we're going to get into that. But the heads of each of them are the secretaries. You know, most of the time they're called the secretary, like the secretary of state, secretary of the treasury. Some of them have special names, like the uh, attorney general, which is one of my favorite plurals in the English language because it becomes attorneys general instead of attorney generals, which I like a lot. Um, and they are sort of one of the closest groups of advisors to the president, and they're typically people who work pretty closely with the president. Um, but they each oversee branches of this huge executive federal bureaucracy, uh, which is the method by which all the, you know, the language that is in the laws, which is often pretty sort of highfalutin language, broad stuff, is actually turned into code for people to use on a, on a town basis or on a, a city basis. Um, so there are lots and lots of agencies and sub-agencies and committees and subcommittees. Um, there are even private corporations that are contracted by the U.S. government that all are part of the structure of the executive branch that turn laws into action. Yeah, the way that I used to tell my students in Gov about it was is that you know, every, if you think of the local level, the state level and the federal level all have essentially a triangle. They have the local level, you have a mayor, a town council, and then, you know, a judicial branch. And the mayor is what the executive is. And the executive always has some people that work for them, right? To help them manage what is going on. Whereas the town council will say, you know, well, we wanna make the speed limit 40 miles an hour, right? 50 miles yeah. an hour. And the executive, the mayor, is actually in charge of the police force. And they're like, you know, you guys need to go enforce these laws, for example. And it's the same way, of course, at the state level and then all the way up to the federal level when we think about like how government's structured. Right. And, and the mayor is also the one who has to figure out who builds the sign and who installs it and how we pay those people. Precisely. Um, Precisely. You know, it's interesting, I, going back just a little bit, I've, in history, right, is that when they originally created the Constitution, they they really were thinking of it in the prospect of that they, well, let me backtrack for one second. Post-revolution, during Revolutionary War, post-Revolutionary War, there was, our government was structured under the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that lacked, most notably, an executive branch. There was nobody that was actually the leader of that government, which is one reason why it was not <laughs> very successful. One, one of a myriad of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> one of a myriad of reasons. But that certainly was lacking. Um, but interestingly enough, when they wrote the Constitution, they determined that there needed to be an executive, for sure. Um, as they said in Article 2, you know, we must elect a president, but they don't really put that many guardrails. There's no, like, they don't really say exactly what the president is supposed to do. And, 
And it's interesting if it's yeah. kind of one of those things where they left that blank because they knew that Washington would be the president and that he would <laughs> kind of set some precedents or if they really felt like they weren't sure how that was going to look. But I mean, even something as simple as the president needs some guidance or they need some advisors around them, like a cabinet, yeah. doesn't actually truly exist in the Constitution. It just suggests that they can have some officers that they call upon for advice. Yeah, and it's a natural sort of step when you think about the processes that they were talking about, of course, in one of his Federalist papers, Hamilton actually had to write an argument to say, we should have one president and not a group of people working together mm -hmm. to be the executive. So it kind of makes sense that following from that, the president wouldn't just say, I'm going to do it on my own. Instead, Washington surrounded himself with some other really talented folks who are among the most, you know, the luminous lights of our, our framers of the Constitution. Um, mm -hmm. And initially, correct me if I'm wrong, there were four departments. Is that right? Yeah. The Treasury, t State, uh, War, and Attorney General. Um, yeah. These four guys, but you know, they did, they weren't in charge of departments really. They were just, again, yes. it was like a one man show Washington with these other one man shows, these four yeah. guys, you know, essentially my understanding is, is that they, you know, would essentially give advice to Washington, but ultimately he was the reason he was going to make the decision on what the executive branch was going to do. And, and also they kind of, they needed that because Congress was really just by the nature of the time was never really inside. They were only in session one time a year. So, so yeah. hard to actually govern them when they didn't have Congress around. So, yeah, we start with these with these four four individuals that are a part of this cabinet. And then there was actually no law that was put in place that said a president shall have a cabinet. But that was the precedent that was set. And, you know, John Adams adopts it and then Thomas Jefferson adopts it. And then from that point forward, we see this kind of generation of 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 cabinet positions but then the, again it expands as we go through history and i think this is one of those examples where it's just so eminently a good idea that you know people picked up on it and were willing to run with it um but that initial crop of uh of folks in the cabinet we're talking about thomas jefferson was secretary of state and hamilton was the secretary of the treasury um and it was henry knox is that right uh, mm -hmm. was secretary of war Mm -hmm. I don't recall who the attorney general was. Do you know? Randolph. William oh, okay. Randolph. William mm -hmm. Randolph. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, those are our, our first four secretaries. And over time, the departments are going to, you know, blossom out from there. And we got a whole bunch of new ones. Um, do we want to sort of... One place... Sorry, just to interrupt, but Please. for all the Ham Hamilton fans out there, those cabinet battles that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote, obviously, they're fifth fictitious but at the same point in time to me they actually really speak to the way that some of those decisions were made you know just like an argument between these people and then washington ultimately saying okay i heard you and i heard you like i i actually wanted to put opposing you know, he he distinctly chose hamilton and jefferson because he knew that they were mm -hmm. like exact opposites of each other and they would give him differing advice so that then he could make a good decision and I think a, a really strong cabinet, a president will do that. They will try to get, they shouldn't, in other words, they shouldn't be a bunch of minions of the president. They should be people mm -hmm. that are willing to give different opinions because that's ultimately what they're trying to do is advise and, you know, help the president make the best decision that can be made. Yeah. And that's sort of the thesis of uh, the famous Lincoln book. 
that mm-hmm. Doug Grant Goodwin wrote, Team of Rivals, is that he was successful because he did just that. But uh, do we want to go through some of the departments, talk about where they came from? Yeah, you know, I thought, I mean, there's 15, so I don't think we need to go through all of them, but I do think it would be interesting to talk about how some of these, how do we go from four to 15? Like, what yeah. are some of the ones that, and I'll, maybe I'll just start with the one that always strikes me as so fascinating, is that sure. it's not until it's 19, or sorry, 19, 1849 that we get the Department of the Interior, um, yeah. which is essentially, you know, the what some people say lovingly is called the department of everything else it's it's like it's like an agency there or a group sorry it's a cabinet position excuse me and of course an agency that works Mm -hmm. on what actually is happening domestically like within the country and so it's funny to think about the fact that prior to that when we think about say legislation that was passed by congress to you know build canals railroads uh well railroads is later obviously but canals like none of that the executive branch has no way to enforce or do any of that um it's all out of the department of state and it just becomes this enormous position and so they have to you know uh break off and create the department of the interior yeah and the largest uh agency within the department of the interior is the uh bureau of indian affairs um which was tasked with coordinating relations with uh, the various different Native tribes, Native American tribes in the uh, in the country. And uh, I think it just shows you how little concern the federal government had for the American Indian folks in our country that it took them until the mid-1800s to really organize that effort. Um, and to be honest, the Bureau of Indian Affairs for uh, a lot of its history did a lot more harm to American Indians than good, um, mm-hmm. setting up things like the, the infamous boarding schools and, and other places. One of the, the famous heads of the Bureau of Indian Affairs famously said that uh, to save the man, we have to kill the Indian, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that they try to make the children, they would take children away from the tribes and uh, try to make them basically as white as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that's yeah. not the main topic here, uh, but right, we right, will right. actually no, no, come sure. back no. to that. But I mean, I think it's actually interesting because it's, um, well, I mean, I think before that it was all operated out of the Department of State. So that's one yeah. thing. But also, you know, the 1849 is, is notable because it's after the Mexican-American War. And so it's ac- yeah. actually after America is even grappling more. Like they've already, they've pushed, yeah. they've been, they pushed so many tribes outside of the borders of America at that point. But then yep. once we once America wins the Mexican-American War, it's like, oh, shoot, now we now we are again on top of this territory that we have yep. to now figure out this extraordinarily complicated relationship between sovereign nations and ourselves who want this land. And so, yeah, it it, it does. I guess that my point is, is it doesn't strike me as that bizarre. But yes, it has obviously been mishandled for yep. many years. Yeah. Yeah. And uh just you know the answer to most of those questions of how do we deal with these people who have been living here in the land that we just got is let's fight a war against them so Mm -hmm. uh, we get a lot of plains wars and things like that in the late uh mid to late 1800s but uh moving on uh i i feel like we have sort of two more eras of big innovation in the department um one of them being sort of uh the progressive era which we've talked about in uh our previous episodes, but under Taft, we have uh, the Department of Commerce uh, and the Department of Labor um, come into being. 
Um, and then after that, the next big innovator is uh, Lyndon Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. And some of these departments, uh, President Kennedy had wanted to establish and Congress was not interested. But by the time Johnson was in charge, he was able to set up um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development um, and uh, the Department of Transportation, um, which are very much in line with his, you know, great society program of let's improve things here at home and, and you know, the war on poverty and all the other causes that he espoused. It makes a lot of sense that these would be the departments he'd set up. Mm-hmm. And going, yeah, going back to Taft, you know, those two, I hadn't even thought about that, but um, that's a direct response to years of kind of laid back, laissez-faire policy from the federal yeah. government of not getting involved in labor and commerce. Um, and the progressive era brings in a different kind of take for what the government is responsible for. Like, you know, people are, are asking essentially at the turn of the century, like, well, what is government for if it's not going to protect mm-hmm. us? from, you know, when, when we're trying to strike against our employer, or if it's not going to protect us with any sort of, you know, regulations. And so the progressive era brings that about and the departments of commerce and labor come out of that. Which I think, you know, points to the larger point that uh, by looking at the history of these departments being added, we're also sort of seeing what's on America's mind in these moments. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's what is pressing enough to us that's sort of a new issue that we feel like we need to form a whole new department on it. And I, I think that's especially true of Department of Veterans Affairs uh, in the aftermath of America grappling with what you know, Vietnam did to the soldiers who fought there. Um, and you know, the, the Gulf War and things like that would follow soon afterwards. And maybe nothing is more, more closely related to that than uh, the Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. which uh, is established. Right, right in the yeah. wake of 9-11. Yeah, our most recent department. Also, I mean, yeah, it, uh, to that point, the Department of Education is created in the 1970s, actually as a as a response to our loss of, of Sputnik and the science wars mm-hmm. against the Russians during the Cold War, during the Soviets during the Cold War, um, a recognition that the United States was kind of falling behind on education. And of course, you know, some of the war on poverty stuff from Johnson. Same thing with the Department of Energy. It's another response. Again, it's a time during the energy crisis of the 1970s, the federal government recognizes they really don't have much control or much really full understanding of the national and like energy assets that America has. And most, and just as notably, the fact that, um, the Atomic Energy Commission was not actually under the executive branch. So all the stuff that was mm-hmm. going on nuclear, like our kind of nuclear projects, the you know whole complex that comes out of the Manhattan Project, <laughs> that was actually under a separate agency that was controlled by Congress. And so, again, bringing that under the executive, um, I think it's a great point to think about that. So one question I asked you before, so maybe you're prepared for this, but um, you know, well, uh, two questions actually. Um, you know, what strikes you as the most important cabinet position in general, oh, actually? Boy. So, like, if you were to choose your, like, this is the cabinet. I mean, lots of people would argue, by the way, that we have way too many departments in the executive. Yeah. Like, the, the executive branch is way bloated. It's not, it's much larger than it was intended to be. Um, if you just look at the Constitution, you can see the founders didn't give a whole lot of thought to the executive branch. Yeah. Um, so... But let's just say that we agree that all 15 need to exist. I don't know. What would be your most important? What do you think is the most important? 
It's an interesting question because I, I think some of the ones that maybe are the most significant, we don't necessarily see present in our daily life, right? Mm -hmm. So at a pretty fundamental basic level, something like regulating currency or uh, you know, negotiating with other nations are really, really important things, right? That's why state and treasury were amongst the very first ones, as was, uh, you know, the attorney general who later became the, the head of the Department of Justice. Um, you know, those are some of the most essential functions, but I can't say I interact with them much on a daily basis, um, which is sort of an interesting dynamic there. Um, I think if I was really pressed, I, it's hard to say that, you know, state isn't like incredibly important right the ability to negotiate with other with other countries but i i do think that perhaps there would be other mechanisms to deal with that um if we mm -hmm. didn't have the department of state so i i might say the department of treasury but that's also just because i teach economics so mm -hmm. uh, maybe i'm biased <laughs> in that in that sense as well what do you think what's your answer I would i mean i would probably go with the the most obvious which would be the department of state and that's probably just the bias of as a high schooler, if I could name any. Actually, I'm sure as a, as a high schooler, I could not name a single cabinet member. So let me be clear. Maybe by the time I got in college, I could. <laughs> Maybe yeah, afterwards. I think there was probably a better chance that I remembered that Thomas Jefferson was the first Secretary of State than that I could name any of the people who any were of the other actually people. serving the, the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, actually, no, that's not true. I did know the Secretary of State when I was in high school or sometime. I can't remember because it was the fir our first Secretary of State. And it was Madeleine Albright. Right. So that was notable to me um, yeah. because, First you know, that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the one that I'm most exciting, I, you know, the, the other question, and I'll, I'll answer this one first that I asked you was, who are you most excited about? And, you know, I actually took this question as not something not about a singular person, um, but just about which cabinet that I'm most excited to see what will happen with. That would be Michael Regan with the EPA, because mm. of all the the. Um, agencies that have had an, an odd uh, relationship with the Trump administration, the EPA certainly did. And because yes. we're trying so we're, you know, I think Biden signed us back into the climate accord yesterday. Um, but, but now we have to actually <laughs> defend to the world that we deserve to be back in the climate accord yeah. and that we will legitimately do something about this. I think um, the EPA has kind of the, the tallest mountain to climb at this point to kind of, go figure out which which way it's going to go to meet some of these goals and again uh determine that they're that they're legitimately concerned and thinking about this again so i'm excited yeah. to see what happens there absolutely and if you want to learn more about the paris climate accords and the united states relationship to it you can listen to our previous episode <laughs> on that topic how is that for you know promotion self-promotion miss Rallage? i'm a hey, natural <laughs> All right. So uh, I would say that the cabinet member, I, I'm really excited to see what the Treasury looks like under Scrooge McDuck. Uh, I just think he's got the kind of, no. Um, I would say that uh, I, I went in sort of a different direction, that I, I am actually very excited about an individual person. Um, and uh, the one that I'm very excited about is uh, the new Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who is the first uh, Native American woman to serve in that post. Uh, and, you know, after the long, you know, frankly horrid history of the the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I think I might have said department earlier. It's the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Mm -hmm. um, having a woman who is a member of, uh, you know, the 
the Pueblo. Um, she, she has heritage from two different Pueblo groups. Um, I just like, I think it is such wonderful justice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, besides being, you know, a very accomplished uh, statesman herself or statesperson her, herself, um, having her symbolically fill that role is an extremely powerful thing. Um, to say not that this is the U.S. government versus indigenous peoples, it's the U.S. government uh, accepting and appreciating and valuing indigenous mm-hmm. people. Yeah, absolutely. I'm working with, I, I could not agree more. Um, well, I, to get back to your original question, not to do a hard pivot from a serious topic, but I did want to answer what your original question um and you know i'm not as witty as you are this is my problem mr linden so it takes me a second to come i mean but, but no one is so it's <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> we're experts on everything and i'm the wittiest person who's ever lived right uh... i mean this is this is what listeners should know <laughs> i don't feel good even about making that joke but yeah um i would say i was gonna say uh well who's our best super who's the best superhero in the world. I mean, that's a whole different podcast. (laughs) Okay. So my answer to my, so my answer to your original question, right? Okay. So secretary of transportation, we need Mm -hmm. a superhero. Um, I would suggest wonder woman because she can fly and she's a female. Of course I like more females and, um, cabinet positions, but, um, but I don't honestly know who is the absolute best superhero flyer i mean i think I a natural choice would be the flash <laughs> right i mean oh yeah can, the flash okay there we can go. go very very quick but there is the possibility that he goes fast enough that he accidentally travels back in time and you don't want to show up too early to where you're going to or anything like that <laughs> no so, i don't know maybe not the ideal situation I at least some, uh wonder some way woman to fly people, yeah That's wonder it. woman would keep people honest about like you know did you pay the fare right uh all that kind of stuff you can use the whip the lasso to make sure they're telling the truth yeah jump through the air with her amazing superpowers yeah she doesn't even fly i don't know what i'm talking about maybe we'll just go with superman all right i mean he's an alien so but he has an i don't know if he's if you're not born on earth are you still uh like eligible to hold office in the united states (laughs) clark kent isn't he superman he is. Well, he grows up as Clark Kent, but he's born on Krypton. Oh, oh gosh. Okay. I really need to learn my superheroes, huh? So next week, uh, we'll be talking about superheroes <laughs> uh, with Miss Ravage. I'll just be sort of doing a 101, you know, who's Wolverine, uh, what's a Deadpool, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I really look forward to that. Miss Ratledge, as I always, do need to learn was... this because I have a five-year-old boy. Oh, so. my God. Yes, you need to know this. Uh, it was lovely to talk to you this week about the cabinet. I didn't make a single joke about cabinets. I'm proud of myself. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to you next week. Absolutely. Good to see you. Bye. Bye.